1: Hello everyone, welcome to New Books Network. I'm Tiadam Slongkomer, the host of this channel, and today I'm here with Dr. Michael Burley to talk about his book, Radical Pluralist Philosophy of Religion, cross-cultural, multi-religious, and interdisciplinary. Now, I think religious pluralism is something which is very much uh, talked about in today's context and also philosophically uh, Dr. Mikkel tries to uh, look at this pluralist philosophy of religion and tries to understand this philosophy of religion also give a framework which he calls as the radical pluralist philosophy of religion. So to dig deeper into this, uh, let's straight away go do the author himself. So, Dr. Mikkel, can can you tell us something about yourself?
0: Yes, I can. Thank you very much uh, uh, for uh, having me on the, the podcast. Um, yes, I mean, I I, I've, I work at the University of Leeds uh, in the north of England. I'm in the, the School of Philosophy, Religion and History of Science. And currently I am um, one of three deputy heads of that school. Um, And I'm an an associate uh, professor of religion and philosophy. So philosophy of religion is very central to my teaching and research. I've been at uh, the University of Leeds since uh, 2005. Uh, So quite a while now, Um, and I teach not only philosophy of religion, but also uh, in the area of uh, South Asian religions, sort of broadly speaking, especially Hindu and and Buddhist uh, traditions. I teach material on those topics. Um, And before I came to Leeds, uh, I uh, did a PhD at the University of Bristol, and that was in uh, Indian philosophy. I was specialising in uh, Sankhya and Yoga philosophy, And that that PhD um, uh, ended up being turned into a a monograph, a book called Classical Sankhya and Yoga, an Indian metaphysics of experience, which came out in uh, 2007. Uh, Since then, I've I've, uh, uh, published a few more books. Um, And I mean, I I don't know how how far back into my past you want me to go, but I could at least say that um, some of my background training is in both sociology. And philosophy, and when I say philosophy, I mean both uh, Western uh, philosophy in analytic and continental traditions, and also Indian philosophy. As I say, uh, my PhD at Bristol was uh, was on Indian philosophy. Um, so, uh, so I have, I have a sort of a, quite a varied academic uh, past, and uh, up to the present, I think it's it's helped me in seeing uh, the topics that I research from different disciplinary perspectives. And so the, you know, the term interdisciplinary in the subtitle of the, the book that we're discussing is very important because, uh, you know, I draw upon uh, sociological, anthropological, and literary and other, other sources uh, in, my, in my research.
1: Yeah, quite interesting. And you say that you have a background in studying Indian philosophy and also in sociology and all. So I'm also interested to know how this book came together as a pluralist philosophy or religion or looking at religious pluralism. Yeah.
0: Yes, well, for several years now, um, I have been among... A number of uh, people practicing philosophy of religion in the sort of western context um, who have become increasingly dissatisfied with the the narrowness in the scope and perhaps certain limitations in the in the methodology of the way that uh, western philosophy of religion has been has been practiced um, and so i 've been working you know i 'm not unique in this but i 've been working on ways of trying to expand it expand the philosophy of religion both uh, in terms of the range of religious traditions that are uh, discussed the the uh, variety of uh, religious phenomena that uh, are discussed within uh, sort of philosophical terms and um, and also thinking about methodology thinking about how uh, one can develop especially in my case, you know, more interdisciplinary ways of working. And, and so these, these interests of mine have manifested in various publications over the years. And so that the book that of mine before this one, before a radical pluralist philosophy of religion, was on the topic of reincarnation. It's called uh, Rebirth and the Stream of Life, uh, a philosophical study of, um, of reincarnation, karma and ethics. And that too, I I, I sort of situated it disciplinarily within the philosophy of religion, but it was trying to do something a little bit different from the usual, you know, exploring aspects of uh, reincarnation beliefs uh, across multiple different um, uh, uh, religious and cultural traditions. And 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 so that sort of got that was my one of my more significant contributions to this expansion of the philosophy of religion and then subsequent to that I continued working on a number of articles in in different um, different areas of philosophy of religion exploring uh, ways of drawing upon ethnographic material and also literary material or narrative sources and so I published a number of articles on those themes and they they, they had a certain coherence to them and i eventually sort of reworked them um and also added some further material and that produced the the book that came out in 2020 a radical
1: pluralist philosophy of religion that's an interesting background to the book actually yeah so now when you we are talking about religious pluralism we are looking at the plurality of conceptualizing certain religion but also at the same time we're also looking at the historical background all of those aspects now as a philosopher someone will look at it from a very philosophical point of view now when we talk about religious pluralism obviously there are many names but uh, there are three persons that you talk about here which is john hick uh, john cobb and victoria harrison now this is where you delve into their work and you know do a critical um, overview of their work so can you in short tell us what their you know solution to the religious pluralism is and how their solution might not really come up to the, uh, to the way how religious pluralism might be conceptualized
0: Yes, um, it's it's a big topic, Uh, so I'll 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 try my best to be to be brief on it. Uh, I I selected in the so so part one of the book is uh, is on critique and methodology, and the chapter that you're referring to is the sort of critique uh, component, and so I um, you know I wanted to contrast my own. Uh, position and my own approach to some existing ones. And the ones that I selected, as you say, were were those um, versions of religious pluralism that have been presented by uh, John John Hick, John Cobb and Victoria Harrison. And so these, are, of course, are not the only um, contributors to this area of discussion, but, uh, but they're, they're relatively representative. Um, John Hick has been a, a very significant figure, and I have a lot of admiration for his work, for the way that he, um, he broadened out the range of religious traditions that are discussed and, tr- and considered within the philosophy of religion. But ultimately, um, his approach to religious pluralism, I find unsatisfactory because of the extent to which he, what, what I call, I describe as sort of homogenizing um, the, uh, the, the multiplicity of religious traditions. He aims to, uh, to, well, he makes the claim that all, at least all what he calls the great uh, uh, world traditions are directed towards the same metaphysical principle, uh, which he calls the real. And um, it, I suppose in principle, there's, there's nothing wrong with making that claim. But I think it, it, it runs the risk of overlooking the, the, the differences, you know, the important uh, distinctions that need to be made between different religious traditions. And another thing that it does is it sort of sidelines, it marginalizes um, smaller traditions, especially um, what we might call indigenous religious traditions, they, they kind of get left out of the whole picture. So those are two things that I want to try to overcome in my own approach. I don't want to be um, homogenizing, I don't want to be essentializing or oversimplifying, and nor do I want to be leaving out uh, those smaller religious traditions within the compass of my, my work. Um, John Cobb, he is a little bit more, uh, what I might say, you know, pluralistic insofar as in his approach, he allows for different aspects of this metaphysical principle that uh, supposedly all the great traditions are directed towards. Um, he also has an aspiration to promote a kind of harmony between different religions, and I have of course i mean it'd be crazy to have any aversion to promoting harmony between different religious traditions, but again, the risk of uh, foregrounding and prioritizing that kind of aspiration is that it it overlooks important differences between religious traditions and so my emphasis and I don't want to say that my approach is um, is I certainly don't want to say that it's the only uh, uh, approach worth pursuing um nor even necessarily is it the best approach but where its emphasis lies is on trying to bring out explore um differences as well as similarities between traditions and, and putting aside any aspiration to try to unite them under one general theory um so again, you know, I think there are there are uh, there are certain aspects of John Cobb's approach that um, are at least out of step with the approach that I uh, pursue. And uh, in the case of Victoria Harrison, her approach is quite different from um, from Hick, Hicks' approach or that of John Cobb. She calls her approach um, uh, a, a sort of in in it's a internal realist approach. So it's an internal, realist, pluralist approach. And the crucial thing about it, I mean, she draws upon the work of Hilary Putnam in developing it. And the crucial thing about it is that she claims that um, not necessarily individual religions, but what she calls faith stances, so particular religious perspectives, are incommensurable with one another. They are, they do stand uh, radically distinct from one another. So, in in a way, you know, this would be one way of putting my disagreement with uh, Victoria Harrison. Um, she goes too far in the other direction. You know, I, I, I'm, I, I certainly want to acknowledge and admit and pay attention to differences between different religions, different religious perspectives, and so on. But I don't want to claim that they belong to distinct conceptual schemes that somehow interferes with their ability to even understand one another. Um, as I say, I think that's going too far in the other direction. And, uh, I, you know, I could say more about... Um, all three of those those figures but um that's probably enough to to indicate where my disagreement lies
1: yeah interesting so as everyone knows in every religion obviously there are inconsumable differences i mean which cannot be really brought together right so how, how do we really understand these differences in a sense how does these differences come about and how do we understand it and if, if we are going forward to talking about, uh, let's say, a form of religious tolerance where we live with these kind of differences. Then philosophically, how do we really understand these differences, and you know, how do we really cope with it?
0: Yes. Well, I mean, I, I think the important um, thing from my perspective is not to not to enter the inquiry with assumptions that say all the religions are ultimately. Directed towards the same uh, metaphysical reality. Um, so, the so a crucial uh, part of the inquiry is to be attentive to both similarities and differences. Not to enter, as I say, not to enter the inquiry with um, with broad ranging assumptions about what must be the case. And then, well, I mean, it's it's no easy matter. Um, as I say, my my emphasis is not on necessarily. Uh, promoting or developing uh, harmonious relationships between the religions. I think that that's an important um, aspiration to have. But um, I think that the logically prior uh, piece of research to do is to just come to understand the religions uh, sort of on their own terms in a, in a, in a deeper capacity. And so that's what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do. And if, if they, if there are disagreements between them, then it's important to try to elucidate and uh, clarify wh- what, those disagreements are rather than glossing over them in the, uh, in the, uh, with the aim of, of, of somehow pretending that they're, they're ultimately all in harmony with, with one another. Um, so, so as i say so the um so the project of promoting tolerance respect religious harmony and so on come at a, i suppose at a, a a further um stage along the way my own project is i would i would say at, an, at a at a prior stage to that it's trying to clarify it's trying to elucidate it's trying to um Understand and analyze the religions and the, the various uh, cultures and perspectives in their own right. Um, and then there are many ways of doing that, and uh, and the many ways of doing it, I I try to um, exemplify across the the various chapters of the book. So no doubt we can we can go into some of those uh, those methods that I I deploy.
1: One of the things that you also point out is the. Um some of the problems with the philosophy of religion and trying to understand religion. See, for me, personally, as I look into religion, right, the discourse in terms of philosophy, the discourse of religion is so much dominated by the, the you know, Judeo-Christian idea of what they call as God or the ultimate reality or the ultimate being and, and all of those aspects, you know, the meta aspect of it. So when we talk about religion, these questions, obviously doesn't escape, in a sense. And basically, when I work on the traditional religion or in the indigenous religions and all, uh, somehow all these questions also pop up, right? Whoa, so what is God in traditional religion? Uh, you know, How do we compare it to the Christian idea of God and all of those things? But then I, I don't see should or can be compared to what Christian God should be because it has uh, their framework of trying to understand all of the aspects. So in terms of understanding these things from a philosophical point of view or the philosophy of religion point of view, what are some of the topics that philosophy has in terms of understanding these things?
0: Well, I think you've you've put your finger on the um, one of the main shortcomings of a lot of uh, contemporary mainstream Western philosophy of religion, um, which is a, a fixation, an obsession. Um, a, a sort of single pointed focus on the topic of theism as it gets called which is a you know as as, as many listeners may know is a sort of somewhat abstract term um, that refers to something like you know a belief in a monotheistic god normally a mono, monotheistic god rather than uh, uh, than any other type um and and so yes uh, there has been a, uh, a strong emphasis, a strong bias towards considering questions that are relevant to uh, Christianity, Judaism and Islam. But often it's it's a little bit worse than that, which is that the, the concept of theism, because it, um, it tries to engage with the idea of belief in God at quite an abstract level, it's not always obvious how the questions that mainstream philosophy of religion engages with Actually, relates to ordinary uh, people's religious lives. So I think that you know that that is that is all part of the uh, the critique that has been levelled against mainstream Western philosophy of religion over recent years by uh, other colleagues, uh, inclu- including myself. Um, and and so. What I think also that was hinted at in the way that you posed the question was the way in which by imposing um, that sort of Western philosophical paradigm onto other religious traditions, maybe small scale indigenous traditions included, um, And hence, by sort of trying to shoehorn those traditions into one's own framework of discussion, asking the same traditional questions, but just in relation to those other traditions. So, you know, how does their, as as you say, how how does their conception of God relate to the the conception of God that is prominent within theistic uh, modes of of religiosity? Um, That's that. has the danger of doing a conceptual injustice to those uh, traditions that one is purportedly investigating? Um, now, the, the solution to sort of overcoming that that danger or that risk is no easy matter. And I don't, you know, I, this is it's, my my book. I I think is very exploratory. You know, trying to find ways of um to use the phrase that i sort of borrow from some Wittgensteinian philosophers such as dz phillips doing conceptual justice to the uh, to the phenomena to the traditions under under examination um it's 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 hard one has to you know seek out different uh, methods different approaches ones that stray outside of the uh, the ones that have been pursued by mainstream western philosophy of religion and uh, again another risk here is that um that when one does this uh, sometimes uh people who are familiar with reading mainstream western philosophy of religion don't readily recognize what one's doing as falling within the sort of remit within the scope of uh, philosophy of religion, and again, I draw attention to the, the subtitle of my book, which is cross-cultural, multi-religious, interdisciplinary. Um, so I'm not claiming that it's uh, it's, stan- it's doing philosophy of religion in the standard way. No, it's it's trying to do it in a cross-cultural, multi-religious, interdisciplinary way, and uh, and and exploring you know ways of going about that.
1: Yeah. So. In the next section, you talk about examples of uh, how you try to do the radical phlo- pluralist philosophy of religion. Now, where, this is where you also put in the concept of dick, dick description, right? So, looking at the three example, can you point out some of the methodological ways or some of the examples that you have brought out from the uh, three examples that you have brought out, right, to how, how the radical pluralist. Phlo- philosophy of religion can be ex- exemplified through the three examples that you have given can you elaborate that one
0: yes I mean there are yes I, mean, I, I hope throughout the book there are there are various various examples um, and and so among the, the sort of methodological tools that I draw upon thick description is is pr- prominent among them and thick description is a you know it's an interesting concept it originated in uh, our analytic philosophy. Uh, the very term was coined by Gilbert Ryle, um, a philosopher at Oxford back in the uh, 1960s. Um, but then it became much better known as, an, uh, as a concept and as a, an approach when it was picked up by anthropologists, primary among them being uh, Clifford Gitts, um, in the early 1970s. And 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 Geertz uh, popularized the notion of thick description, and he developed it in a way that was uh, pertinent to um, ethnographic uh, forms of research. And I don't use it in a in a particularly strict way. You know, what I mean by thick description is providing forms of description that are you know rich. They're detailed. They're embellished. They're not simplistic. They're not they're not pared down to uh, you know overly simplified thought experiments. The kinds that um, that philosophers, uh, including philosophers of religion, often work with. I think that um, that more it, um, more elaborate. Um, more embellished uh, forms of description can be helpful. They can play a part, and the part that they can play, among others, is familiarising us, familiarising the reader with a perhaps a, a form of life, uh, an approach to life, um, different aspects of religiosity that the reader may not have been previously familiar with. With, now you don't familiar, familiarize yourself with a tradition that you're not already uh, acquainted with by reading very simplified thought experiments. The way that you do it is by immersing yourself as much as you can within that tradition. Now, the best way of immersing oneself is to actually go and you know live among people that um, that uh, that exemplify some some particular religious tradition or cultural uh, form of life, and that is what. You know ethnographers do so sort of second best as it were is to read the work of um, you know very accomplished ethnographers and to um, to familiarize oneself with those uh, those ways of being those ways of being human that are presented in the in the ethnography so you know ethnography is a is a you know primary instance of thick description Um, because it brings out different aspects of a culture including uh, important religious aspects. Um, Another form of thick description, which is a a way in which I'm using the term perhaps in a slightly extended sense, is uh, a a work of narrative. It could be a work of narrative fiction um, and that would include novels or uh, theatrical plays or even films. Now I don't explore many of those in this particular book. That's a project that is ongoing for me, but um, but I do give some examples. So in chapter three, where I discuss um, narrative. Uh, fiction. I give the example of the, the uh, Dostoevsky's novel, The Brother, Brothers Karamazov, uh, great classic novel, and how he um, explores different perspectives on religion through that novel, including um, a, a very uh, committed. Orthodox Christian perspective on the one hand, and a, a sort of radical atheistic perspective on the other, and, and other you know, different kinds of perspectives in between. And I also, at greater length, um, explore uh, Wale Shoyenka's play, um, Death and the King's Horseman. And so that's a little bit more novel on my part, a little bit more original on my part, because um, uh, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov has been discussed by other. Philosophers of religion, to some extent, um, whereas uh, *Death and the King's Horseman* I think is a remarkable uh, work of theatre by Wale Shoyenka. and you know, too too many themes within it to go into detail now. But um, but what I try to bring out is the is the way in which a play such as that can present to us whether it be on the stage or whether we're reading it um, in written form can present to us different religious and indeed non-religious perspectives embodied in the characters that are you know uh, engaging with each other uh, in the action of the of the play and I think uh, Death and the King's Horseman does that to a very uh, great extent, and it and th- so through my discussion of it, I try to exemplify how we can, as philosophers of religion, not only draw upon, say, works of uh, of narrative fiction of that sort, but also how the the works themselves, in this case, a play, can be understood as sort of doing a kind of philosophy themselves, do, like doing a kind of pluralistic philosophizing, simply by placing different perspectives in juxtaposition with one another
1: quite interesting as to how you conceptualize this very idea of the description in that sense and when you go into the narratives or narrative forms and all now uh, one of the examples that you bring out is the buddhist idea of compassion now how does this um, buddhist idea of compassion you know argue towards this radical pluralist philosophy or religion yeah
0: well one, one of the uh, sort of General principles, I suppose we could say, that I am applying in my work, Um, I've hinted at it uh, strongly already, is um, a resistance to oversimplify and to homogenize, uh, whether it be concepts or traditions. And so what I'm picking up on in the chapter on the Buddhist uh, concepts or conception of compassion is that... Compassion can mean many different things. Um, you know, the, the term compassion or its or its um, sort of linguistic equivalents in in different um, indigenous Buddhist languages um, can can mean different things in different contexts. It can mean different things to different uh, Buddhist traditions, and also more broadly, it can mean uh, different things in other religious traditions too. So I'm, you know, I my uh, my foil, you know, the, what I'm arguing against in that chapter. Is the sort of claim that says, somewhat glibly, either compassion is at the heart of all religious traditions, um, or, or and or, um, compassion is uh, the essential feature of Buddhism, you know, something like that. And, and people people do say that. People have said things along those lines. And I give a few examples of people saying something pretty comparable to to that. Um, now, I don't want to argue that. That I don't want to claim that uh, compassion is not extremely important within Buddhist traditions and, and other traditions too. All I want to claim is that we need to be careful about assuming that we already know what um, what compassion amounts to in any uh, religious tradition or, or set of traditions before actually looking carefully at what what its implications are. And so I try to you know bring out within the chapter. Um, Different, I, you know, I talk about different uh, stories and and different um, traditions of, of Buddhism, in which the the concept of compassion seems to amount to um, you know different things, or at least it has different implications for how one acts and how one uh, and the sort of attitudes one adopts towards one's own life and towards others. I mean, I could give a couple of examples. So. One of the stories I talk about is the Vaisantara Jataka, the, the, uh, the, birth, the sort of birth narrative of uh, one of the Buddha's previous lives when he was Prince Vesantara, and, and this, um, this story is claimed within uh, Buddhist traditions to illustrate primarily uh, the, the virtue of generosity, we might say, but, but as also, you know, the idea of compassion is, is built into it too. Um, and yet the way that those virtues are ex- uh, exhibited in the story are by Vesantara, um relinquishing attachments to uh, his worldly possessions and indeed his worldly relationships to such an extent that he's willing to give his uh, two children away um, to be to become servants or slaves of the, the person to whom he gives them. So it's a very stark, it's a very striking, it's a very emotionally engaging story that has a prominent place within certain Buddhist traditions. And yet, you know, the, the, the way that it's exemplifying, illustrating that particular virtue, whether we call it generosity or compassion or a combination of both, is um, is one that we might find from a certain perspective quite ethically challenging um let's say and then within within other traditions we find within other, other buddhist traditions um we find the the concept of uh what gets translated as skillful means you know or paya or uh, kalsalya um and this is a notion that opens up you know the interpretation of Acts, uh, whether they be regarded as sort of um, ethical acts or other kinds of uh, behavior, um, to very wide uh, interpretations. And so there's a story in which, uh, again, it's a story about one of the Buddha's previous lives, is claimed that in order to prevent a thief, a murderous thief, from um, engaging in murder upon a, a ship, that the Buddha. Uh, undertook to to kill that thief um it was a, a perhaps a hard decision to make but um but it's decided to uh, to commit an act of murder himself and yet it was committed out of out of compassion of course compassion not only for the thief himself to prevent him from uh committing any heinous crimes but also compassion for the other people on board the ship so again it's another very complex story illustrating the, the notion of compassion but in a in a striking way in a way that we might find you know surprising so it's claimed that certain acts of of, of deliberate murder can themselves be compassionate. And this is what I'm doing in the chapter. I'm sort of exploring these stories. I'm exploring other aspects of Buddhist traditions in order to show that compassion can come in very different forms. And so we simply shouldn't assume that we know what it means. We know what it amounts to in every case
1: yeah interesting now again you dedicate the next two chapters on bringing two more different examples or in terms of mortuary practice sacrifices and the human body and all of those aspects but i want to go into the chapter where you brought out animism as a case study in trying to understand this uh, you know or bring out this radical pluralist philosophy of religions right so how do you bring in um, animism here and how does it example play the very radicalist philosophy of your religion yeah
0: Yes, thanks. Uh, so in chapter seven, um, I explore the, the, the concept of animism. My, my, I have a couple of purposes in that chapter. So one purpose, uh, one sort of overarching purpose is to find uh, some ways of engaging with um, aspects of indigenous religions In relation to philosophy of religion, so I talk about um, previous attempts that some philosophers of religion have made to discuss indigenous uh, religions, and they haven't—you know—they've tended to to not do it in a very thorough way. Um, And it's another—you know—it's another difficulty. It's a difficulty for um, any anyone that's sort of familiar with the uh, the form of philosophy of religion that goes on within mainstream Western academic contexts to know what to say what 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 can usefully be said about uh, small scale indigenous religious traditions so that's the sort of overarching theme and then within that within that context within that context of the chapter um, i take the, the the concept of animism as one that lends itself to some interesting i think sort of philosophical uh, analysis and uh, and discussion not least because um, Again, as some listeners may be aware, the concept of animism has sort of been revived. It's undergone a, a revival. So back in the 19th century, when it was first used uh, by anthropologists, especially um, Edward Tyler, to denote uh not only um sort of aspects of religion but actually something that was very central to religion you know edward tyler defined animism in terms of uh, a belief in spiritual beings and he thought that that was absolutely central to um religion as a whole so there was a sense in which for tyler animism was the the very heart of of religion um but over the over time um both by Tyler himself and by others, the term an- an- animism became more associated with um, the forms of religion that one finds in small-scale societies. Um, and it may may be applied to the belief that um, uh, plants, animals, um, various other features of the, the natural environment are either uh, sentient and uh, and that's not such a controversial claim uh, in the case of animals of course but may also it it may also imply that they have a certain um uh, person they have certain personal features or spiritual features and uh, are indeed uh, spiritual beings of certain types and um and so again as the as anthropology developed as this term uh, animism" uh, came to be used more uh, prominently it's it came to be almost um, synonymous with particular times types of small scale indigenous religion. And it was thought later on, you know, within, by about the mid 20th century, it was thought to be a somewhat derogatory term. It was thought to be um, a, a little um, dismissive of those traditions. To say that uh, something was animistic was a way of saying, hmm, it's a little bit kooky or um, or uh, peculiar. It's not uh, very rationally grounded. Um And so, understandably, anthropologists didn't want to be uh, saying that about their subject, you know, the the, the people and cultures that they were studying. And so the term animism dropped out of favour. But more recently, um, you know, towards the uh, very end of the 20th century and into the the current uh, century, the 21st century, the the term has been revived. And there's even this this concept of new animism, um, which Distinguishes itself from the so-called old animism by um, emphasizing uh, different different aspects of um, of the religions, uh, both of small-scale indigenous societies and of others. Uh, among the things that are emphasized are um, the t- t- relationality seeing um, oneself in relation to different features of the environment and um, and different animals and uh, the whole ecosystem and thinking of that um, as a as an interconnected um, sort of network of um, whether we just call them sentient beings or, or personal beings but certainly some new animists have claims that sort of personhood is attributed to um, uh, animals plants and indeed uh, some uh, mineral uh, entities um and so philosophically this is an interesting area to to discuss and um and how i try to discuss it is to pick up on some examples of places where uh, philosophers of religion and anthropologists have discussed um, uh, the concept of animism and so I make these distinctions between old animism new animism talk about the the various meanings of uh, various ways in which the term new animism is being used and um, and within that context I distinguish between sort of literalistic ways of understanding animistic talk on the one hand and metaphorical ways on the other. And I endeavor to make conceptual space for a third possibility, which is that when say, um, personhood or sentience is attributed to the earth, Um, or to an area of of land, it's not essential, it's not necessary to uh, conceive of that either in reductive metaphorical terms as sort of being merely metaphorical, as we might say, but nor is it necessary to, uh, to think of it in Overly literalistic terms as meaning that the um, the land in this case um, has sentience or personhood in exactly the same way as um, as a human being might. Rather, what you know, the third possibility is that this way of talking, this way of relating to the earth, sort of opens up um, an alternative way of conceiving of of the earth, um, a way that uh, exhibits. A profound kind of respect and um, and uh, you know, careful and uh, considerate treatment of the Earth, and that gets articulated through the through the language, in a way that can be reduced neither to a pure literalism nor to a, a merely metaphorical way of talking. That that's the idea. That's one of the one of the key ideas that I'm exploring in that in that chapter.
1: Now, as I'm listening to you and as I've been reading your work. I kind of see the kind of suggestion that you are putting in that the, the radical pluralist philosophy of religion is. Um, it's more like saying like to the philosophers as to go beyond just doing you know the armchair philosophy or something like that? Is it something that you're suggesting in a sense of like to the philosophers or in terms of a philosophical thinking on the pluralist aspect of religion, that is it uh, you are telling them to do you know philosophy, but also at the same time philosophy through fieldwork in a sense?
0: I'm, I'm certainly not telling anyone that they that they ought to uh, to engage in um, philosophical field work but it is an interest of mine and um, I've, I've, I've done that to a very limited extent myself but I think it's something that I would very much like to explore further in the future. So um, I'll give you the example um, in in the book uh, that draws upon some of my Fieldwork, and uh, I I hope it's not too grandiose a claim to call it uh, philosophical fieldwork, but uh, but it is fieldwork that was intended to inform my understanding of um, of a a particular uh, religious festival as it happens. So, um, so in chapter six of the book, uh, the the central example um, that I'm using to, in order to explicate certain ideas about two main themes, one of which is uh, what gets called divine possession. And another of which is call is, uh, is animal sacrifice. Um, So these are, these are two um, dimensions, two aspects of a lot of, uh, a lot of ritual activity, not only in, um, in the particular uh, religious context that I'm discussing in the chapter, but elsewhere as well. And yet, you know, it's, it's far from easy to know how, Philosophers of religion, in the whether it be in the sort of analytic tradition or um, any any style of Western philosophy, how how they're going to you know, engage with those forms of practice? Well, um, in order to educate myself uh, more about um, about the themes of uh, animal sacrifice and um, divine possession in religious ritual, I I travelled to um, Assam. Um, to the, the t- and I visited the, the Karmakya Temple, which is just north of Guwahati, the uh, uh, the capital of Assam, in 2017, and I spent time um, investigating uh, a particular festival which has goes by various names, uh, sometimes uh, Manasa Puja or the Diodani uh, Utsav Diodani festival. But what's absolutely central to this festival is the performance of a sort of ritualized, uh, vigorous dancing um, performed by somewhere between you know, 16 and 20, 21 um, male dancers of whom, It is claimed that they are possessed by various deities uh, uh, from within the the sort of Hindu pantheon, broadly speaking. And a number of these deities um, that it is claimed inhabit the bodies of of these dancers for the duration of the festival are fierce, ferocious goddesses. Um, And so a number of these these dancers um, sort of act out Uh, fierce and ferocious gestures within the the sort of dance that they're performing and they're wielding um, certain kinds of weapon. In fact, um, there's, there's one of these dancers depicted on the front cover of my, my book. Um, uh, He's jumping in the air. He has a sword in one hand um, and he has quite a stern expression on his face. And, um, and he is embodying, you know, a, a, a deity, of a of a ferocious kind, um, so we've got the, the theme of divine possession there, and the uh, animal sacrifice is is a is a routine um, practice at the Kamakya temple, and it intensifies during uh, certain festival periods, including during the uh, the three days of this particular festival to which I'm referring, and, um, and many of the animals that are uh, beheaded are uh, young male goats and also a lot of pigeons are sacrificed and some other animals, other types of animal as well. And, and so the themes of, of blood and of um, uh, sacrificial practices are combined with uh, these elements of divine possession into a very vigorous, vibrant festival atmosphere with drumming and cymbals clashing. Um, And I could not have really got the full sense of that festival if I hadn't been there myself. So I, I, you know, I I made the effort to, to sort of visit the the temple before and after the festival and I spent you know the the whole duration of the festival present there within the the, the temple complex observing what was going on uh, absorbing the atmosphere and taking quite extensive notes while I was there so although you know I'm not a trained anthropologist I'm not uh, I've I've never carried out any extensive ethnography and it would be it would be outrageous to refer to what I did there as ethnography it wasn't as uh, it wasn't as anywhere near as extensive as that but it was a kind of field work and and i hope that i've been able to bring some of the information that i gleaned from that experience into my articulation um, of the what i I might call the sort of phenomenology of the festival that i uh, i i I, uh, i try to explore and and express in the chapter um And whether, you know, whether readers will recognize it as legitimately philosophical is uh, is another matter. But uh, but I hope that it does um, help to inform readers who are not already familiar with that kind of uh, festival um, experience of something about, you know, what it's like to be there.
1: In the beginning, I also mentioned about how the study of the philosophy of religion is dominated by the, you know, very Abrahamic conception of what God is and all of those divisions. Now, when you look at traditional religion or indigenous religion, as we call it, their philosophical aspect is yet to come to the forefront into the discussion in the arena of the discussion of philosophy of religion, right, the worldly arena. So obviously, it will take some time to for them for that philosophy to come up, and that is something which I'm also really interested in trying to you know formalize or you know conceptualize this indigenous philosophy of religion and i think that is something a very interesting aspect so uh, looking at all of those things now with this radical pluralist philosophy of religion one one of the things that you're also suggesting is also trying to reimagine how philosophy of religion is done right so can you tell us something about how you are trying to reimagine this aspect
0: well, yes, I, I mean I, I use that that phrase um, towards the very end of the book, in the in the final uh, chapter, in the, in the very final section of the final chapter, and it's it's a way of um, of me trying to encapsulate what I'm doing throughout the whole of the book. Um, so m- much of what I've already been saying is um, you know relates to my idea of how philosophy religion might be reimagined, and I don't want to um, be you know. Presumptuous about it, and I don't want to be um, brash um, in claiming you know, that uh, that somehow what I've done in the book is the way that philosophy of religion ought to go. All I'm doing is uh, inviting um, my my readers, you know, perhaps especially my readers who may engage in uh, philosophy of religion themselves. I'm inviting them to explore examine to think about um alternative ways of, uh, of, of of undertaking uh research and writing in the philosophy of religion um so my reimagining you know i i say you know here what i've done in this book gives some examples give some examples to to consider um but um you know th- it, do, do it yourself, you know, think, think about other ways that one could um, expand the, the scope, the parameters of philosophy of religion. So the ways that I've used in the book um, include what we've been talking about. So that's drawing upon ethnographic studies. It's also, to a limited extent at least, um, undertaking a bit of fieldwork myself. And um, drawing upon literary narrative sources as well. Um, and giving emphasis to, you know, thickly described examples, uh, and also giving emphasis to the plurality, seeing where the, um, the the important differences are, both within and across and among and between um, different um, different expressions of uh, religion and culture. Um, and, and and seeing where one goes you know that's that's the uh, that's the imaginative project it's uh, not to be too constrained by the existing routine traditional ways of doing things but uh, but seeing what other possibilities are uh, are available
1: thank you thank you very much uh, dr Mikhail, for that is there any other thing that you want to highlight from the book which i might have missed out
0: Nothing in particular. I mean, very briefly, uh, because it was skipped over. I'll just mention um, the topic of one of the chapters that we didn't discuss. It you, you did allude to it uh, quite briefly, but uh, it's uh, chapter five on uh, it's on the theme of cannibalism. Um, and my purpose there is to examine how. Um, the very concept of what a person is or what a human being is can shift. You know, can be um, can be take on a different complexion, a different um, aspect in cultures where uh, various practices are performed, including uh, different types of cannibalism. So, if you've got a culture within which human beings are among the things that can be eaten um, without that, uh, breaching any particular, uh, ethical norms, for example, then, um, that has an important part to play in the very way that human beings are conceptualized. Um, you know, no longer is the, the distinction between the animal and the human, no longer does, um, that which can be eaten and that which cannot be eaten feature so prominently within that conceptual distinction but the distinction can be made in in other ways and, uh, and so i draw upon ethnography from um, uh, anthropologists who have worked in the brazilian rainforests discussing a particular uh, cultural group called the wari uh, in that in that chapter and uh, and so there yeah they're some of the themes that i explore there it's another example of of how um, i'm trying to uh, find ways of engaging with small scale indigenous uh, traditional cultural groups um, in a philosophically interesting way
1: yeah thank you thank you very much for that so if anyone wants to reach out to you how do they reach out to you
0: they can they can reach out to me in various ways. I mean, the, the obvious way would be uh, just to type my name into uh, a, a search engine, Mikel Burley, M I K E L B U R L E Y, and it's very likely that my university profile uh, webpage would come up uh, as one of the top um, items in in such a search. So I have a you know I have a webpage on the University of Leeds. Website and that uh, gives information. It gives my uh, email address and my um, you know, details about some of my publications and so on. I also have a academia.edu um, webpage, and so that would probably come up in in, in a similar search. And um, if if somebody has an academia.edu account, they could download uh, some sort of preprints of of uh, my publications from that website. So they're probably uh, the two the two most obvious ways of, of uh, finding. More out, more about my work.
1: So, um, what are you currently working on, or is there any other exciting project that is coming up?
0: Yes, I mean, uh, I, I am working on some projects, uh, uh, slightly too many to, to mention all of them. But uh, the main one is, and, and it's a, an extension of the the book that uh, we've been talking about. It's a, it's kind of taking this further. I'm, I'm trying to develop the the area of what I call narrative philosophy of religion uh, in greater detail. So I've had uh, had some um, sort of articles published on this theme already, and there's the chapter in uh, in the book, chapter three, where I um, do some exploration of of uh, the utilisation of narrative sources for developing both you know thickly described examples that can then be engaged with philosophically. Um, so there's there's an example of that, or some examples of that in in the book that we've been talking about. But I'm trying to develop the project further and looking at say um, uh, Hindu mythology, uh, Buddhist mythology, uh, Yoruba, uh, so West African uh, mythological themes, the kind of stories that are told within those cultures, and the ways that the ways that they can inform us about um, different aspects of their Religion, whether it be religious beliefs or religious, religious practices or just simply the, the mythology itself it is intrinsically um, you know, philosophically interesting, raises philosophical questions and we can try to explore ways of, uh, you know, of, of talking about it, discussing it um, philosophically. So, but not just mythology, but also um uh, novels and films and and such like so I'm you know that that's the area of my research that I'm, I'm developing further uh, currently it's a long-term project and I hope that it will evolve uh, into uh, a monograph into a book and maybe other publications in in due course
1: Exciting work ahead. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Mikhail, for being here at New Books Network. It's a pleasure having this conversation with you. And also, I believe that the listeners will have cleaned a lot from your work and also they will grab a hold of your book and then go through it. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Mikhail. Yeah.
0: The the pleasure is all mine. Thank you very much for your uh, uh, interesting questions.